Our speaker is Mr. Wilman Spawn from the American Philosophical Society, who will be addressing us on the identification of 18th century American bookbindings. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him here. Thank you very much, Terry. Yes. For you who don't know what my project has been, for 30 years I have been interested in American 18th century bookbinding. I'm conservator at the American Philosophical Society, and early upon my arrival there, I was examining the collection, and I was aware of the fact that a great portion of the early books in the Philosophical Society Library had all been bound by the same binder, very substantial, plain bindings, filleted spines, and very nice lettering. There's a copy of the reprint of our original talk here, if anybody wants to see it. This collection seemed very interesting to me in the fact that it was a wide collection, books from Franklin's Library and others. So over the years, as I worked on the repair and care of the books, I tried to look for documentary evidence, recording when I had to repair one, as much evidence as I could find. But there seemed to be nothing internal that would give me any clue as to who the binder was. In 50, 1956, when we undertook our first major oiling project in 10 years, the previous one having been done by Carolyn Horton when she was at the Philosophical Society in 36, oh, 20 years, 20 years, that's, I realized, <laughs> uh, prior, we decided to record the tool bindings in the library uh, to see if I could get any handle on the work. And this is when the project really got going, and I started to accumulate rubbings by the thousand. Uh, it seemed almost a hopeless project. And when I got through at the Philosophical Society, I had found three ticketed bindings, uh, none of which on the bindings that I was looking for the identification. And there was still no evidence that I could prove that the books were Philadelphia bound, other than the fact that they all bore the markings on the base of the spine, APS, our monogram uh, symbol. It was then that I went to the library company of Philadelphia to see if I could find out what their early bindings of the 18th century were like. And from Ed Wolf said I would never live to finish the job, and uh, 30 years later I'm still working on it, but I have learned an awful lot. And what I'm trying to talk tonight will be on how far the study has gone beyond the identification of Robert Aiken, who was the APS binder. Uh, it was all just happenstance that I stumbled on the thing, because after rubbing for nine months at the library company, Ed Wolf said, why don't you start with a known binder and identify his work? And I said, who would you do? And he said, well, Robert Aiken, because we have his account book. So he produced a 700-page account book, and I sat down and started to read through it. And almost immediately, I saw an entry which I recognized as a book I had been shown the previous week. It's a very elaborate chinoiserie binding, elaborate tooling in the Free Library of Philadelphia. And it was in their regular stacks, as you can see from the shelf mark on the spine. <laughs> It had just been taken 
to the rare book room, and it had the book plate of the man with the inscription presented to his son upon his graduation, and on the same date in the account book is the payment to Robert Aiken for tooling the book, extra gilt, for one pound and 15 shillings. It, it was more than happenstance. So starting with that, I started to make a catalog of the tools in that binding and then track them down to other books. In 1963, we published the results of our finding in the papers of the Bibliographical Society on the identification of the Aiken shop. And then I decided that I had then about 1,200 books attributed to Robert Aiken. Was he really that great a giant, or was there somebody else working in Philadelphia of equal stature? And from there, I've been working ever since on 18th century Philadelphia binders. However, I never wanted to completely ignore the fact that I needed to be able to identify Philadelphia bindings from Boston, New York, Williamsburg, Annapolis, Newport, and all the other cities of the 18th century that had binding. And it's been that project, which has now taken me to over 90 libraries across the United States. My file is now over 15,000 rubbings, and I spend many hours sorting them back and forth and trying to identify the tools. And I find now that I can go beyond the tools to the actual craftsmen and recognize as many as two and three workmen in the same shop using the same tools. This may seem rather far-fetched that such identity is possible. such identification is possible. But it is true that once you get to be able to differentiate one tool from another, that there is a consistency in the way and the style in which they were handled. It's become very noticeable to me that as I've made my catalog and worked on the length of the appearance of the tools, that tools have a, a lasting appearance of being in fashion or in vogue, and that a given style is used only for a limited length of time, and then new tools come into the, parent, into the picture. Uh, I tried at first to think that new tools always indicated a new craftsman. But in checking, I find that new tools appear in combination with some of the older tools, so that there was a constant turnover and a revising of style due to, I think, demand. And what I'm now working on is trying to find out what were the influences that caused the turnover, because they seem to be at specific times and specific dates in the 18th century. So far, I've confined my research purely between 1700 and 1800. And I am interested not only in the plain blind tool bindings, but also in the elaborate gilt ones, because there is a connection between the two. This example is one that Mr. Aiken bound within the first year for Reverend Jacob Duchesne. It's a folio prayer book. This seems very Scottish. Remember, he was just one year 
in this country, from having come from Scotland. And although this was his style for the elaborate gold tool bindings, when he was called upon to do planar bindings, he still used the same tools. And it has been through comparison and verification of one tool with another that we have mapped in the intervening years the succession of tools that were used in the, co in the colonies. The changes that I've noticed, uh, I plotted out first by style, by pattern of design, those designs which were very common, uh, by types of books. And I find that there are several factors that are very important. You can't compare large folio books with small duodecimos. You can't compare folio books with, except with other folio books if you want to get a sense of a change in style that was to occur. And therefore, I've had to go back several times and rework my thinking to see whether or not the influences were regional or due to migration of craftsmen, because we do know that the journeymen were very mobile and they could move very quickly as there was demand and employment. So that you will find tools appearing first in one city, and then in another city, on a numerous times, and these peregrinations can be tracked by following the newspaper advertisements. The other thing that I've had to develop is a file of who the craftsmen were, which has meant hours of research into historical records, newspapers, court records, wills, inventories, to find out who were the craftsmen and how I could identify them. Can I have some water? I've been talking all day and it's catching up with me. <laughs> I found it rather exciting that the identifications have gone as well as they have, and at times I felt I was getting carried away because it seemed unreal. Uh, about five years ago, I was somewhere over 50 binders in Philadelphia. I'm now past 100. I'm doing Boston binders. I'm doing New York binders. And each time I would look and say, is it really true that uh, or am I making a mistake? Uh, are these tools so characteristic of one city that they cannot be confused? Uh, I thought I let it out, I guess I didn't. Uh, I had an, an example which I going this afternoon. I thought maybe you folks would like to see it. Uh, the tools are cut by binders, uh, tool cutters, for the binders. They're engraved in brass, heated by the binder, and then stamped on the book. And there are both hand stamps and rolls. 
these things were cut by engravers. Uh, this one happens to be cut by a London engraver. It was used by Mr. Aiken. And it's interesting that they issued sheets, as far as we know, broad sheets with the designs, and the binders picked them out and ordered them. We have a couple of known broadsheets from the early 19th century, and I have no reason to believe that the 18th century tool catalogs were not very similar. And therefore, it is very possible that two binders would buy fairly similar tools. So one of the problems we developed was to try to figure out by what method we could differentiate two very similar designs. And it's gotten down to some very precise measurement, which I use with a 10-point divider to measure 10 units of the design. And in this way, we're able to sometimes be able to distinguish a tool that was used in New York from a similar one that might be used in Boston. The work on the Boston area proved to be very successful. And however, I don't have the documentation for the binder's names. I only know on what books they appear and for what length of time they were active. I hope at some time that we can match this up to a directory of Boston binders, but at the present time I have extended the study to New York as well. And it's been very interesting to me that New York, although it turns out to be a very provincial city with very distinctive binding in the early part of the 18th century, by the 1740s, it is fast becoming cosmopolitan and very similar and very much like the binding, the tooling that was done both in Boston and New York. And I think we'll find that this is probably attributed to the fact of increased coastwise shipping. It is often very difficult when you first localize out a, a tool or a design that you realize is distinctive and you found the second and third and fourth copy to try to know on what basis you should make an attribution. Uh, recently, an interesting collection of bindings came to my attention on a series of laws, one for New York and one for Massachusetts, both found identical. The tooling on the Massachusetts laws had a label which read Boston Axe and New York Axe, both for the, 17th, the end of the 17th century, but it seemed to be a binding of the early 18th century. Uh, interestingly enough, while working at the New York Historical Society, I was able to find an account book with an identical binding, with an account for it being bought from a binder in New York, dated 1737. There are the two law books. On the back is the account book in the New York Historical Society having the very same tooling. 
It is through this detective work that I've enjoyed a very fascinating 30 years of visiting libraries, recording bindings, meeting many helpful librarians, some of whom are here tonight, Maud Cole, who brought me many books at the New York Public Library over the years. And it's always interesting that it's been the helpful librarians and the people that I've met who've called my attention to many items that I might not otherwise have seen or who remind me that, did I know that? And along comes an interesting list of things. So that it's not something that one does totally on one's own. It is with the help of many other interested people. My wife has worked with me on this project. We've indexed the Aiken account book and used it as our basis for much detailed information as to what the careers of the binders were like, how large were their shops, what percentage of their work was gold tools. And Aiken's account book is not the only one that we found. There are a number of 18th century binders records available. There are printers records available. There are numerous receipts, invoices, and shipping bills that all lead us to the path of such deductions that we've been able to make. Perhaps one of the most interesting things I got involved in in 1953 was setting up the study for the Colonial Williamsburg Bindery and their research in trying to identify the William Parks tools. Williams Parks had come from Hereford, England to be the printer for Merlin in 1726. Who he brought with him to work, I do not know. He had a nice collection of tools and he was employed by the colonial government of Merlin in Annapolis in 1726 to bind the law books. There's ample records in Maryland Hall of Records of his work there before he went on to Williamsburg. In 1731, he opened a shop in Williamsburg, and in 1736, he moved from Annapolis to Williamsburg. And there he continued his life binding until 1750 when he died. His tools were used interchangeably between the two cities, which were connected by coastal travel. And it's very interesting that many of these bindings are quite similar to the things that were done in Philadelphia and Boston. And one of the things we are interested to be able to note, that new tool designs that appeared in London are turned up in the colonies within three years of the date that we find them first in London, in Annapolis, in Philadelphia, and in Boston, so that the colonies were not far behind the London design and re the demand for design and style. So that I think that although people think that the colonies were far removed from the mother country, they were quite closely related. One of the more difficult aspects of the study turned out when we tried to carry the study past the revolution. The familiar double panel style 
of the early part of the century gave way to plain signs and tool spines because the new fashion of lettering spines and vertically shelving books with their spine edge out no longer demanded the decoration on the sides. As a result, the appearance of the tools on the spine are much shorter appearances of the ornaments, and it is difficult to get long runs. And where I was able to get a long run that I could get a measurement on a tool design, it is seldom that I can find more than one or two or three inches of the design on a spine, and therefore making the study much more difficult. However, the development of the mechanical trade, a precision of cutting tools also was perfected by the 1790s so that the cutting of the tools are nearly identical. And by that time, we find it much more difficult to recognize one tool from another by measurement. However, we do find that being there was considerably many more binders active at that time, the possibility of duplicate tools are much more in evidence. I hold up here a group of decorative designs used between 1788 and 1794. They're, all the ones on this sheet are identical designs of three different tools all used in Philadelphia. The interesting thing is this tool is found in Boston and New York as well. And at the present time, I have now been able to separate out seven different copies of that tool, all used within the same seven-year span. So that we are able, by careful research, to separate them out, but it goes much slower than we had expected. Where does this all lead to? I've published now, I think, six items on bookbinding history and design and the identification of their tools, but I find it very hopeful that sometime I will be able to bring out a catalog of 18th century Philadelphia binders tools, as well as one for Boston and New York. But it takes a great deal of cooperation and a great deal of additional help and interest in the part of people. And it is for that reason I am very grateful that I could be part of this program to share my interest with you and hope that other people will join me in the research. Thank you.